You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Today I want to speak to you about this subject, the importance of personal evangelism. If you'll find your Bible and look with me at Romans chapter 1, we'll be there in just a moment. 2020, here's our theme, here's our emphasis. Who is your one? Who's your one? The blue block letters behind me are a 2020 all-year challenge. I want to repeat this so often that you wake up 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning asking, who's your one? I want to repeat it so often that you either are sick of me or you finally embrace it, one of the two. But I want to encourage and challenge you to be a life-changing, difference-making, effective believer. I want you to understand the need and the importance of personal evangelism. Romans chapter 1, begin reading with me in verse 8, what Paul wrote in the Spirit of God is inspired. First, First, I thank my God through Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both your faith and mine. I do not want you to become unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And now our focus, verse 14, I am under obligation. I am a debtor. I am bound. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager, eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As is written, now he'll quote Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. May God bless the reading of his word. In the meat of where we're going to go in verses 14 and following, I just want to get there in a moment, but I want you to notice in verse 8, if you are a believer in the room today, you ought to join with the Roman believers, you ought to join with the author of the greatest letter, if not the greatest letter, one of the greatest letters ever written, join with these believers and giving thanks to God for your faith. And by the way, I just give you permission to do that right now. You don't have to wait till later. So let me just say that again. So maybe, maybe that would just kind of overtake us. All right, you ready? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I give you permission to give thanks to God for your faith. And I want you to notice in verse 8 that when the author gives thanks to God, he gives thanks to God through Jesus Christ. If you want to get to God, get to know Jesus Christ. He is the mediator to God. He is the highway to God. You don't get to God outside of Jesus Christ. In fact, right about verses 12 and 13, the next piece you need to be aware of for this text of Scripture to make 
any sense whatsoever for you is this. Paul writes to a group of believers in Rome, and they're wondering why this celebrity Christian, this super Christian, if you will, the super apostles never gotten there. So he tells them, it's my desire. Hey, call time out for just a second. Look right here. Paul had the confidence to write a letter called Romans to a group of Christians he never met, but he knew that they had the ability, the discipleship ability to understand this letter. Have you read the book of Romans? It's tall, it's stout. There was some discipleship happening back in the day, so he thanks them. He thanks God for them more appropriately. He thanks God through Jesus Christ, and he says, I want to get to you. Now, our focus. Verse 14, he says, I am bound. I'm under obligation to the Greeks and the barbarians. And then in the second step, he says in verse 15, I am eager. Focus on that word eager. And then the last step, I am not ashamed. Three powerful statements. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, I want you to adopt those three statements. I want all of us to join with Paul to be able to say, I am bound, I am eager, and I'm not ashamed. Would to God. You know, history tells us Paul was a small man. If he were to stand in front of us today, could he see over this pulpit? I don't know. But would to God that we'd have the might of this man who had these three powerful attitudes who approach life this way, I am bound, I am eager, and I am not ashamed. Look with me first, in beginning in verse 14, where the Bible says, I am bound. The Bible says specifically here, there's an obligation here. And if you're going to be an effective, difference-making, life-changing Christian, you're going to have to have an attitude of obligation. What did the dwarf, one of the seven dwarfs say? I owe, I owe. You get it? See it? In fact, there's two ways I could owe you something. If you had given me $1,000 as a loan that I am obligated to pay you back, that 1000 is not mine, it's yours, and I'm to pay you back for that. There's a second way, there's a second way that I can be indebted to you. Someone has given me $1,000 to give to you. Somebody else has given me a sum of money that I am to give to you. And that's the sense of verse 14. As far as we know, Paul never stepped foot into Rome prior to writing this letter. He doesn't owe a penny to anyone there. But he has a powerful obligation, a debt, and he's bound. And by the way, it's not just him, it's you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are bound and you're under obligation. Because when you receive the gospel, you incur a debt. In fact, you could say it this way, obligation to him who died produces an obligation to those for whom he died. An obligation to him who died produces an obligation for those whom he died. This debt, this powerful debt, you see, I may not have borrowed a penny from you, but yet I owe you something powerful. Because if the gospels come to me, if the gospels come to me, I have no right to keep it to myself. That's a great place to insert an amen. I'm going to give you a second opportunity on that one. If the gospels come to me, I have no right to keep it to myself. Why is that? Because the gospel's far too valuable to keep to myself. Far too valuable to keep just for me. 
And so what I'm speaking of here is a task and a joy and a discipline that God has given us, and it's something called evangelism. Evangelism is the compassionate sharing. It's the compassionate sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to people who've yet to embrace Jesus. So it's not an invitation to the church. It's not an invitation only to tailgate. That's great, but it's the compassionate sharing. It's an emotional intelligence. And I get into the narrative, the facts that Jesus lived for you. He died for you. He was buried for you. He was raised for you, and he's coming again for you. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we're reminded, even though we might be bound, and we might say we're eager and we're not ashamed that Apart from Jesus, I could do nothing. And so I am bound. By the way, how do you see yourself? If I were to meet you for the first time later today, if I were to stick out my hand and say, hey, my name's Scott, I am, what would you say? What would you say? Hey, my name's Paul. This is who I am. Look what Paul does. I didn't read a moment ago, but I want you to go back. Look at it in verse 1 of chapter 1. Just a handful of verses up there in the beginning. Look what he does. Paul... A servant, your translation says, a servant. That Greek word is a word called doulos. And it probably should be referred to, probably should be translated slave. The reason it isn't translated slave is probably because in the English audience, we've got all this race-based slavery. Paul says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Friend, listen to me. I stand here in front of you. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price of Jesus Christ. And do you know that the early Christians would frequently refer to themselves as slaves to God? Over in the book of Revelation, it speaks of Moses. He is a slave to God. How about Mary, the mother of Jesus? When Gabriel comes in that beautiful Christmas story, Luke chapter 1, verse 38, she responds to Gabriel, to the angel's message. She said, I am a doulos. I am a servant. I am a slave to God. In fact, as the New Testament closes with the book of Revelation, you enter into the period called the Church Fathers. There we have just records of what pastors wrote about the early church, and they will frequently refer to other Christians as slaves to God. Friend, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. It's a beautiful thing, by the way. In a nation that is inebriated with the talk of freedom, it's a beautiful thing. It's a happy thing to be bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. For every one of his barriers he puts there is a barricade to keep me from messing up my life. There's genuine freedom and joy in serving and being a slave to Jesus. If you want to experience true freedom, get rid of the chains that you're under right now. There's two kinds of people. You're either a slave to sin and Satan or a slave to Jesus Christ. It's just as simple as that, friend. We are bound. Look back at verse 13 with me for just a moment. Speaking of all this obligation and debt that we're under, look at verse 13. He says, I'm bound, I'm under obligation to Jews and everyone else. Do you see it there? In order that I may reap a harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he's speaking here of going into Rome, and he speaks of the two groups of people. And this is how an average first century First century Jew would have seen it. They would have said there's Jews and everybody else. And then if you move into verse 14, he drills down into everyone else. He says, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. So here his obligation as a believer, as a Christ follower, is as follows. 
I am bound by everyone, no matter if they profess religion or not. I am bound by the high culture, the nose in the ear Ivy League, the educated, or the barbarians. That word barbarians, by the way, it's not a compliment if you're called a barbarian. It's an onomatopoeia word, which is just a lot of fun to say. In fact, it's likely that it arrived because the Jews thought that they were just simply saying bar, 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 bar. Do you remember Snoopy, Peanuts, the teacher? What did the teacher say? Wah, 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 right? Paul's saying, I'm under obligation to categorically every person and every kind of person, no matter their religion, their race, all people I'm obligated to, I'm bound to them. I owe them something. How is that? He said, when Jesus Christ died for me, I'm bound I'm to communicate this. I'm bound to the educated and the savage. I'm bound to the, all tribes of people. Imagine with me in our great state of Texas for just a moment that the governor has chosen you, our governor, Governor Abbott. He says, uh, pulls you aside at the mansion there in Austin. He says, uh, we're about to execute someone here in the state of Texas, but this is what I want you to do. I've got a pardon here, and he hands you a written pardon. And I want you to take this pardon, and I want you to deliver it to Huntsville because this man's not to be executed, I'm pardoning him. And you leave the, the mansion, the governor's mansion, but that's when your wife calls and she says, we need a gallon of milk. And what do you do as a husband? You get the gallon of milk and then your daughter calls and she says, my car's messed up and would you meet me at the mechanic and get me over here to this place? So you meet her over there and then you come home and you got a bill to pay and you got other things that are happening. And then a buddy of yours calls, a buddy. And he says, hey, I got free plane tickets. Free is a good, that's a good word. Free plane tickets to Florida, and I've got passes to a primo golf course. You want to join me? What do you say, men? Yes, <laughs> yes, I want to join you. You've got a bag pack before you say goodbye. So you go to Florida, and you golf, and you come back to the state of Texas, and you think, oh, I've got all these tasks to do and behind at work with everything that's been going on. And so you show up at work the next day, you read the news, over a cup of coffee on your device or your newspaper and the headlines, State of Texas executes man. And you've got that pardon. You've got that pardon. How are you going to feel knowing that that man went to his death and could have been saved except you didn't walk into that place and deliver that pardon? How are you going to feel at the funeral of your mother and your father your sister, your brother, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your roommate, your classmate, if they go to their funeral and they never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from your lips. I'll never forget, I was 19 years of age, student at the University of Kentucky. Chad Griffin had been the starting center and we'd become good friends. He was in another school in Georgetown, Kentucky, about 30 minutes away when word got to me that in his freshman year, he embraced Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself, I just never told him about Jesus. Why didn't I do that? We played for years. What is it going to feel like on that day when they've never heard the gospel for you? See, friend, here's the conviction. The gospel's too valuable 
to keep to ourselves. Who's your one? Paul said, I'm under obligation, I'm bound, I'm a debtor to all men, all people, all of humanity. My life is not my own, I'm bought with a price. We've been singing for half a century or more. Jesus paid it all, what? All to him I owe. And if the gospels come to me, I have no right to keep it to myself. That's got to be a baseline conviction if you're a believer. If the gospels come to me, whether I'm 12 or whether I'm 102, I've got no business keeping it to myself. Paul said, I'm bound. Are you bound? Secondly, he said, I'm eager. Verse 15, are you eager? Are you eager? If you'd have stopped Paul on the way to Rome and said, oh, I guess you're just paying off your debt. Got to feel crummy. He said, no. Not only is it a debt that I'm obligated to pay, but I'm eager to do it. That word, eager in verse 15, look at it with me for a moment. If you were to get into the word, the word behind it, a Greek word, speaks of a willingness, a zeal, an enthusiasm, a passion. My friend, my former mentor, Roy Fish, would use two words to describe this. He called it holy heartburn. Isn't that a great picture? What do you mean by that? It's a passion, a zeal, enthusiasm. I'm on fire to share with other people. There's just something that strikes it as eager. Paul says, I am eager. Are you eager? I want to tell you, over 20 plus years, I wish I could say that everyone's eager. Not everyone is eager. How do I pay my debt off? Well, look back at verse 15. He says, I am eager, next three words, to preach the gospel. That's probably four words. To preach the gospel. It's an unfortunate translation there because when we think of preach in America, we think of a pulpit and a guy like me. But do you know that the word there is the word evangelism? I'm eager to do evangelism, is what he's saying. I'm eager to evangelize. Isn't that powerful? See, friend, you don't need a pulpit. You don't need a preacher. What you need is a willingness and a zeal and a passion to do this. That's what we need. This man says, I am eager. I am passionate. Now, if we could have a dad talk for just a moment. My kids love dad talks. They ask for them at least twice a day. If we could just have a dad talk inside my house. If I could just gather you up, bring you in my house, and do the following. I would say this. Excuses don't do anything. Excuses don't bring good grades in. They don't bring paychecks in. They don't get chores. Ain't nothing good with excuses. Okay? Everybody say amen. Excuses don't do evangelism. But we've got lots of excuses. Here's one of the best excuses. Well, I just didn't feel it was the right time. Now, there's some truth there. I've met some emotional jerks called Christians, and I've thought to myself, I've been their pastor. If I weren't paid to hang out with them, I probably wouldn't have. I thought, you know, if I didn't know Jesus, if I didn't already know Jesus, I surely wouldn't want the Jesus that you're peddling. Sometimes it's not the right time. But how long goes by in your life before it's not the right time? Months? Years? I mean, surely we know somebody that made time and controls time. <laughs> See, we're good at excuses. Here's another one. Somebody else is going to share. Somebody else will come along and share. Well, maybe they will. By the way, how many times did it take, how many gospel presentations did it take for you to embrace Jesus? I would dare say almost no one comes to Christ on the first presentation. I didn't. I didn't. Bet I heard it more than a hundred times, and I was just a kid. 
I am eager. It's not about making excuses. It's about willingness, an eagerness to evangelize, a passion. Now, here's what recent studies are showing us. Recent studies said that if you invite somebody to church, almost 90% will come to church eventually. Now, that's not evangelism, but if I'm just going to invite somebody to church, studies show in America that almost 90% they'll arrive at church sooner or later with you. But here's what's happening. Studies are showing us this, that we're sharing and inviting other believers. Only 2% of believers are actually engaging people who don't follow Christ and inviting them to church. But here's the vital truth. It's only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can be assured of heaven. It's only through Jesus that we can be forgiven of sin. He's the one that provides true peace of mind, security, and a rest for our souls. We've got a debt to pay through the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, can I ask you a very personal question? Did somebody tell you about Jesus? Did somebody preach the gospel to you? Don't you need to tell somebody about Jesus? And don't you need to communicate, preach the gospel to them? I love this next story, the subway superhero. I'd forgotten about this guy when his story reappeared in my life. 13 years ago, he was 51 years of age. He's a Harlem construction worker. He's coming home, on his way home, 137th Street train station. He's got his four-year-old daughter and his six-year-old daughter there with him. He's taking them home from school. It's when a college student there on the train station began to convulse, began to have a seizure, violently began shaking. A matter of no time whatsoever, this college student falls backwards into the track. Everyone sees, including Wesley, what's about to happen. The number one train's coming down that track. In fact, he would say later that train was coming in fast, whizzing by. Instinctually, he takes his four-year-old and six-year-old, he says to the woman, look for them, watch them. He doesn't know her from Adam. And that's when the man gathers up this college student, brings in his arms tight, brings in his legs tight, seizes him, puts him in between the train tracks. Can you picture it? And he holds him there as the train goes by. Studies would show later on that he and that man, our subway hero and the man that he saved, they both came out just fine, by the way. On top of one another, vertically, they were 20 and a half inches tall. The train came by at 21 and 21 inches. They had a half-inch clearance. He had a blue-knit cap on that day. Had the grease of the train on that cap. In fact, as it finally stopped he yelled tell my girls I'm okay took 40 minutes to get him out from underneath that train you know what he did next he took his girls home and he went to work I love that he's a dad I got to get to work I got bills to pay eventually the mayor of New York City Michael Blomberg hugged him David Letterman brought him on the night show there used to be a television show with a guy named David Letterman top 10 all that kind of stuff then Donald Trump, I don't know how Donald Trump gets in there. He wasn't anything at the time, just a rich dude. He congratulates him. Now, why are they all doing this? Why do all these people line up? He was brought to the inaugural, or the State of the Union address, I should say, with W back in the day. Why do all these guys congratulate him? It's simple, isn't it? He risked his life for another person. Hey, believer, 
This life will soon be passed. You're going to live this physical life once. You're going to spend a second life someplace else for a duration of eternity. Will there be anybody that comes out of eternal homes and say, by the grace of God and the cross of Jesus, and because you opened your lips, I've arrived in heaven today. Will there be anybody that walks out of their front porch mansion to say that to you? Oh, I want there to be. I hope you're eager for that. Hope there's a passion in you for that. By the way, this past Tuesday, I just got to tell you the story. I sat down at the end of a long day, and I told Tracy, my wife, I said, I got to have a pizza. Just got to have a pizza. I don't know if a commercial came on or whatever, so I went to my favorite pizza place up in Keller to get my pizza. And uh, while I was there, I had it all ordered, walked in. There she was, a young lady, isolated, was quiet, Allison. She may be here today for all I know. Allison was a junior in high school, had braces on. We began to talk about her plans and how she was going to finish and how she was going to go on to the next thing. And there I began just asking her questions. And I said, well, Allison, do you go to church anywhere around here? And she said, well, there's a church I go to. There's a church I used to go to, this crazy Southern Baptist church where they say you can't dance. I said, well, we're not all like that. And I'm a Southern Baptist pastor, by the way. And then I transitioned it over, and I said, Allison, can I ask you a very important question? If you were to stand before Jesus Christ, and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you answer that question, Allison? Bright, smiley face. She said, well, I would tell the Lord that day that I've served people even in the hard times of my life. I said, that's fantastic. I'm glad you did that. There's two ways to answer that question. One way is to tell the Lord, this is what I've done. I deserve to get in. You didn't phrase it that way, but that's exactly what you just said. And the other way is, there's no way I'm getting in. Not a, I'm going to say this purpose, there's not a chance in hell I'm getting in. I said, I've served a few people in my lifetime as a pastor, but I wouldn't trust my best 16 seconds to get me in that door. And that's why I said, Allison, I know the, you got other customers that are coming that's why Jesus Christ died for you. So I took my pizza and I walked out of that little store that night. I said, remember, Jesus died for you. Would you pray for Allison with me? And I'm just convinced there's all kinds of young ladies and young men all throughout both this service and this city. We've got to be eager. We've got to be passionate. I want you to have a life-changing, difference-making kind of life. I don't want you just to earn a paycheck and retire. I want you to make a difference for eternity. And you can do that. Who's your one? Who's your one? Forty years ago, sitting in this service, if I'm sitting where you were, I knew it immediately. His name was Brian Mays, my father. The atheist agnostic raising me. Twenty years ago, I knew my one, Miles, McCall, and Matthew. Who's your one? Who's that one person that God has called you and you're eager to share the gospel? I know you're fearful. I know you're afraid. Friend, the results aren't up to you. Sharing the gospel is up to you. As a friend of mine said once, you cannot serve Jesus with a zipped lip. You've got to open your mouth and communicate. There was a Savior who died for you. I am bound. I am eager. If you're going to serve me effective life 
changing, difference-making kind of person. You've got to have an attitude of obligation, an attitude of ambition. Third, you've got to have an attitude of conviction. Paul would say third, and lastly in verse 16, I am not ashamed. Oh, we need a generation of believers saying that all over America. Everything in America says keep your mouth shut, Christians. Put your religious liberty in that sanctuary, that worship center, but when you walk out, keep your religion to yourself. We need a generation of Christians not to vote a candidate in the White House, but to say, I am not ashamed. We've all been tempted to be shamed by the gospel. That's why he wrote it. He would have been tempted to be ashamed. He was a Jew believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Jerusalem believers would have been exiting on him and telling him he's crazy. We're all tempted to be ashamed by this gospel. But nowhere, nowhere did Jesus say between your conversion and heaven is the journey going to be easy. I like what Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, wrote. Must I be carried to skies on flowery beds of ease while others bleed, bled to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Where do we get our courage? Where do we get our I'm not ashamed? We get in the same place that we found originally. I find it in the gospel. The gospel is what saved me, and the gospel is what will save them and you. Why am I courageous with the gospel? Because it is the answer for the problem that you have. That Jesus Christ died for us. Paul would say, a mouse of a man, but mighty. I am bound, I am eager, but I am not ashamed. I like what he does here. He comes full circle. Do you see it in verse 16? What he mentioned up in verse 13, the Jew and the Gentile. He comes right back and he says, every category of person, every person, they'll be saved by the gospel. No matter if they're Buddhist, Catholic, Baptist, Christian of some denomination but not a reality they all need Jesus Christ so if you come to the place put your face right here on me have you come to the place where you could say I'm not ashamed of the gospel at your work who's your one have you come to the place where you can say I'm not ashamed of the gospel at your school who's your one have you come to the place where you can say I'm not ashamed of the gospel at my house Who's your one? And have you come to the place where you can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel among my friends? Who's your one? Throughout this year, this is our theme. Our goal is to train you, motivate you, hopefully inspire you to share your faith, your gospel story, the gospel story with others. We want to train you, every Bible fellowship group, We'll be training. In fact, we'll have a general training session on the 19th of February. And if you don't have a Bible fellowship group, join me for that one. We'll be going through a great method called the three circles that originates out of the state of Florida that speaks about a broken life. This is a natural conversation. It can help you powerfully in sharing the good news of Jesus. And this is what we're doing because evangelism, the thing I'm talking about is invisible. And so to encourage other people, we're asking that when you do share the gospel, not when you invite people to church, not when you say, you know, my pastor normally doesn't preach all that long except for today, that kind of thing. But when you share the gospel, you get into the Jesus dying for our sins, that you come by a display, and I think it's pictured for you on the screens, or this one, 
And you just put a ping pong ball in there. The ping pong ball is not there based on their reaction. It's there based on what you've shared. And we want 5,000 of those by the end of Thanksgiving. Now, we're not here to one-up somebody else. The quota on Pharisees has been met. We don't need any more Pharisees. We got all that we want, okay? What we do ask for people to have is when you go by there and you see, there's about 100 out there right now. You think, wow, this is encouraging. This is fantastic. And you start seeing a few names in there. We, sometimes we'll put that name down. In fact, this is what we're going to do, and I want to ask you, don't exit those two doors on the end. I want all of you to go right through here because you're going to meet three beautiful, angelic faces of children. And they're going to hand you a ping pong ball because the pastor is a master manipulator, and I thought nobody would turn down a child's beautiful face. And that child is going to hand you a ping pong ball, and I want you to write down the name of your one, your Brian. For Danny, earlier today was Ted. And I don't want you to drop it in anything today. I want you to take that home. And where you brush your teeth and where you get the normal things, I want that name to be there. I want it to be there. I want to remind you that you are called to share the good news of Jesus. Will you do that? I want to close with a story. I'm going to ask that everyone just sit still for just a moment. I know the hour is late. Her name is Amy Carmichael. And for 50 years, Amy Carmichael went to the lost children in India. She went to the lowest castes, and she had a vision that I think you need to hear today. I stood on a grassy sward, grassy slope, and at my feet, in this vision, a precipice broke sheer down into infinite space. I looked but saw no bottom, only cloud shapes, black and fearlessly coiled. And a great shadow shrouded hollows and unfathomable depths. Back I drew dizzy at the depth. Then I saw forms of people moving single file along the grass. They were making for the edge. There were a woman with a baby in her arms and another little child holding onto her dress. She was on the very verge, and I saw that she was blind. She lifted her foot for the next step, and it trod air. She was over, and the children over with her. And oh, the cries they went over. Then I saw more streams of people flowing from all quarters. All were blind, stone blind, all made straight for the precipice edge. There were shrieks as they suddenly knew themselves falling and a tossing up of helpless arms catching, clutching at empty air, but some went over quietly and fell without a sound. Then I wondered with a wonder that was simply agony why no one stopped them at the edge. I could not. I was glued to the ground. I could only call. Though I strained and tried, only whisper would come. Then I saw along the edge there were sentries, guards, sentries at intervals, but the intervals were too great. They were wide, unguarded gaps between, and over those gaps the people fell in their blindness, quite unworn, and the green grass seemed blood red to me, and the gulf yawned like the mouth of hell. And then I saw, like the picture of peace, a group of people under the, some trees with their backs turned toward the gulf, and they were making daisy chains. 
Sometimes when a piercing shriek cut the quiet air and reached them, it disturbed them, and they thought it a rather vulgar noise. And if one of their numbers started up and wanted to go and do something to help, then all the others would pull that number, that one down. So why do you get so excited about You must wait for a definite call to go. You haven't finished with your daisy chain yet. It would be really selfish to leave us and finish the work alone. There was another group. It was made up of people whose great desire was to get more sentries out, more guards out, but they found that very few wanted to go, and sometimes there were no sentries set for miles and miles on edge, and once a girl stood alone in her place, waving the people back, but her mother and other relations called and reminded her that her furlough was due, and no one was sent to guard her gap. And once a child caught a tuft of grass that grew at the very brink of the gulf, and it clung convulsively. And it called, but nobody, nobody came to seem to hear her. And the roots of the grass gave way with a cry the child went over with its two little hands still holding onto the torn off bunch of grass. And the girl longed to be back. In her gap, she thought she'd heard the little one cry, and she sprang up and wanted to go, in which they reproved her. So that no one is necessary anywhere. The gap would be well taken care of, they knew, and they sang a hymn. Then Amy Carmichael concludes, and through the hymn came another sound like the pain of a million broken hearts, wrung out in one full drop, one sob, and the horror of the great darkness was upon me, for I knew what it was, the cry of blood on my hands. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.